Well, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, or if you have been in and out of worship during these winter weeks, we have been opening ourselves, our heads, and our hearts to what the Spirit of God has to say to us through the Apostle Peter's second epistle. Peter describes himself in this letter as being an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty. majesty. And, and Peter is committed to sharing his eyewitness testimony with anyone who will listen to what he has to say. He wants to do this for two primary reasons. First of all, to encourage them with his own deeply personal, intimate knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, to motivate them to take hold of what Christ offers to them and what Christ makes available to them so that they can pursue spiritual maturity and grow in faith. Thus far, we have heard Peter's reminder of the awesome power and the precious promises that Christ gives all who follow him, as well as an exhortation from Peter to grow in godliness. When we were together last time, we looked at a list of virtues that Peter provides in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 1. And this list, while it is not intended to be comprehensive or exhaustive, it provides us with a good diagnostic tool with which we can examine ourselves and evaluate how God is working in us and how we are working with God to grow in the faith. The gifts of grace that Peter details for us in this list are gifts that the Holy Spirit makes available to all Christians. They are not things that we manufacture on our own, nor are they prerequisites for salvation. Thanks to our union with Christ and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the virtues that Peter lists are present to some degree in all Christians. So Peter's purpose in giving us this list is not so that we can look inside and see whether we have these character qualities or not. But Peter's concern is that those who faithfully follow Jesus check in and see to what degree they are growing in and showing these quality characteristics to others. It's almost like Peter is saying to you, check in to yourself so you don't miss out on what God has for you. No matter what stage of Christian development you are at, Peter shows you how you can always be on the way forward, traveling toward the goal of modeling and manifesting Christ-like character. If you have not already done so, please open your Bibles to 2 Peter. It's on page 1018 if you want to use one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. We're going to begin reading this morning back in verse 5 so we can refresh our minds and our hearts on Peter's list of virtues as well as give ourselves a running start to verses 8 through 11 to which we will devote the majority of our attention this morning. I want you to note, especially as we read this and as we get to verses 8 through 11, what Peter encourages us to do so that we will not become ineffective or unfruitful in our Christian walk. Please stand 
If you are able for the reading of God's word, beginning in first, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter one, verse five. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is God's living word for us today. Please be seated. Now, I do not believe that it is the natural goal of normal people to pursue being ineffective. I'm guessing, and more than that, I am hoping that none among us have set out to be ineffective in any area of our lives. My aim in life is to be ineffective as a husband or wife. Better get that straightened out before Wednesday, Valentine's Day. I sure hope I will be ineffective at leading my children. I plan to be as ineffective as possible at my job or in my studies. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope I can be an ineffective teacher. Now, I trust that verbalizing such statements out loud sound as ridiculous to you as I feel in even saying them. But just to be sure that I was not going down the wrong track, I googled books on how to be ineffective. And the only thing that came up at Amazon is a book entitled The 700 Habits of Highly Ineffective People and How You Can Avoid Falling Into Them. Being ineffective is not the goal of normal people. The word ineffective that Peter uses in verse 8 translates a Greek word that means to be unproductive or, or literally without fruit. If you know Jesus' parable of the soils, ineffective describes the soil in which the seed of God's word is choked out by the weeds and the thorns which represent the cares and the worries of this life. Or in another gospel account, the word ineffective is the picture that is conveyed by Jesus when he curses the fig tree because it has no fruit on it. One other example of Jesus using the same word as Peter for ineffective comes in a parable that Jesus tells us in Matthew 20 about a landowner who is looking for workers for his vineyard. And he goes out to the marketplace at successive points in the day to hire those who are standing about idle. Standing about idle is the same as ineffective. As ridiculous as the notion seems of intentionally setting out to be ineffective in any area of our lives, too many Christians are content 
with living an ineffective Christian life. They're happy. They're self-satisfied that they are saved. They're happy with the knowledge that they're not heading for hell. They raised a hand, walked an aisle, signed a card. Maybe they got baptized. But that's as far as things have ever gone for them. As was true in Peter's day, the 21st century church contains many people who fail to display the kind of godly behavior that God equips his people for and which he expects of them. Lackadaisical attitudes toward godliness and presumption on the grace of God lead many people simply to be satisfied with being saved. They know what they're saved from, they just don't know what they're saved for. Now, while Peter doesn't downplay or deny the importance of being saved, Peter wants you to know that being saved is the starting point of the Christian life. It is not the end point. The true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that Peter speaks of in verse 8 refers to an intimate knowledge of Jesus, a knowledge that sparks an unquenchable desire to know Jesus better and better. We sing it sometimes, oh Jesus, I must know you more. I hope you mean that when we sing it. I must know you more. I must have a knowledge that grows and works within me and works it out through me as I serve other people in love. What Peter writes here becomes the launching point for the themes that we, he will continue to explore in greater depth as his letter unfolds. Your relationship with Christ is not meant to be ineffective. It is not meant to be unfruitful. Your relationship with Christ is a relationship that is based on true, intimate knowledge of Jesus, and it is meant to bear the fruit of a transformed life. Now, why is this important? What's the point of writing a whole letter, albeit a short one, about this, and for that letter to actually become part of God's living word? Well, Peter's glad you asked, because he begins to answer that question in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, when I read that verse, I'm afraid that my somewhat oddly twisted mind invariably thinks of Mr. Magoo and the way that he was always bumping into things or overlooking what was right in front of him, not to mention his terrible driving. I'm so sorry to those who are significantly younger than myself to bring the memory of a cartoon character who has absolutely no relevance to our contemporary culture but there is a little something of value in considering Mr. Magoo's fictional example. Peter says, if you are not making consistent progress with respect to the various virtues he has just finished listing, then you are in just as much danger of forgetting that you were cleansed from your former sins as Mr. Magoo is of walking into a wall. So don't be a Magoo Christian. In Peter's day, 
false teachers were out and about and just as much of a threat to the first century church as they continue to be to the 21st century church. And Peter will describe these false teachers in greater detail in chapter 2, but for now, suffice it to say that Peter regards these false teachers as nearsighted and blind, not because they do not know the truth, but because they are willfully shutting their eyes to the truth. They are willfully blind. Peter says that they have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. And the word Peter uses for forgotten is not in the sense of having mental amnesia about the facts, but it is a forgetting that fails to take account of the true meaning and the true significance of what it means to be cleansed from their former sins. These false teachers are not pursuing the path of spiritual growth and maturity that comes from knowing that they have been cleansed from their former sins. Because they are nearsighted and blind, the false teachers fail to be fruitful and effective in developing lives of loving obedience. There are so many voices competing to be heard in the church today which insist that submission to God's word and obedience to God's revealed will is not necessary. Such teachers suggest that such submission is both unnecessary and unimportant. God is gracious. God will forgive. God loves you just the way you are. But taken together, all those statements are not quite the whole truth. God does not love you the way you are. Psalm 711 tells us God is angry with the wicked every day. God loves you in spite of who you are. God doesn't just have a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan to change your life and to change who you are and to make you increasingly more like he is. Now, Peter will expand in this theme a little bit more in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, but I really like the way that Douglas Moo notes this in his commentary on 2 Peter. He says, fake Christians are people who at least claim to have had their sins forgiven by Christ, but who are not now living as if that makes any difference to them. It is always worth checking yourself out to see if you are growing in and developing the virtues and the quality characteristics that Peter lists in verses 5 through 7, because there is no standing still in the Christian life. You're either going forward and moving ahead, or you're going backwards and falling behind. Peter does not want his readers simply to know about these concerns. Peter wants us to take action with respect to them. Read verses 10 and 11 once more. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you follow Peter's line of thought carefully through the opening 
verses of his letter, you find that the words in verse 10 about being all the more diligent actually loop back to verse 5, where Peter tells us to make every effort to supplement our faith with the virtues that he lists. Head knowledge is not Peter's point. Peter is a man of action. And Peter wants you to be a person of action as well. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Don't be afraid to ask yourselves the hard questions. Am I the real deal? And if you answer yes to that question, what can you point to in your life that backs up your claim? What evidence do I have that convinces me that God has drawn me to himself in Christ. We should never be afraid to ask ourselves questions like this. In fact, I believe asking such questions is a vital part of stimulating us to pursue further growth. We should not meet such questions with glib or flippant cliches like, well, once saved, always saved. And even though a truth lies at the heart of statements like that, once again, statements like that do not in and of themselves express the whole truth. We must not gloss over the serious nature and the strength and the significance of Peter's words that we are to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. And Peter gives us two reasons why doing that. Why being diligent to confirm our election and calling is an essential part of the Christian life. The first of the two reasons that he gives is somewhat negative. He says, do that so that you will not fall or so you will not stumble, depending on your translation. Now, when Peter says, so you will never fall, he cannot be talking about achieving some level of sinless perfection in this life because no one knows more about the way that sin scars and disfigures our lives than Peter. We'll get to it later this year, but in, in the writing of the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I believe what Peter means when he says you'll never fall is that engaging in reflection Engaging in self-examination, engaging in self-evaluation will be of such immense value to you in keeping you on track and helping you to avoid crashing and burning in your Christian pilgrimage. Ask yourself, what is the foundation on which my salvation rests? Does my salvation rest on something I did? Or does it rest entirely on something that God has done? That God has done for me in Jesus Christ. That God has done for me in calling me to Christ. We sang it this morning. What is your hope in life and death? Do you remember? Maybe we better sing it again. What is your hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. In his Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan graphically describes many traps and pitfalls that his character Pilgrim falls into as he goes off course. And he causes himself all sorts of needless pain and heartache 
and setbacks along his journey to the celestial city. In one scene, Pilgrim wanders off course and goes into a place called Bypath Meadow. In another scene, he is taken prisoner by the giant of despair and held captive in Doubting Castle. As Peter speaks through the Holy Spirit, he wants you to be sure that you are taking advantage of the beautiful blessings Christ holds in store for you. The Holy Spirit works to assure you that through your submission to, through your dependence on the persevering grace of God, you will avoid such pitfalls and you will maintain a steady, safe, continuous course as you head toward heaven. In 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15, the apostle Paul describes the end result of a shallow, ineffective, unfruitful Christian life with a word picture that describes a person who builds on the foundation that they are given in Christ with insubstantial things like wood and hay and straw. And Paul uses this illustration and tells us that such ineffective building materials will be burned up in the final judgment. Although Paul says such a person will be saved, but only as if through fire, such a person is ineffective and has no fruit. He or she has nothing to show, nothing with which to bring honor and praise and glory to Christ. And Peter doesn't want you to end up like that. And so he goes on to provide a positive motivation and a practical protection for you as he urges you to make your calling and election sure. If you do this, Peter says, you will be richly welcomed into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You will be effective. You will bear fruit. You will bring glory and honor to Christ now and in the life to come. Your progress in the faith and your work for Christ will not burn up like wood or hay or straw, but they will withstand the fire. They will come through the fire, and you will receive a rich reward. Do you want to be fruitful and effective in your faith? Do you want to keep yourself from being nearsighted and blind about what Christ has done for you in cleansing you from your sin? Do you want to live with confidence in Christ and with the assurance of salvation? Then receive and embrace what God's Spirit makes available to you by cultivating and putting into practice the kind of character qualities that Peter lists for us in verses 5 through 7. I want you to pay attention to and not overlook the importance of the word practice that Peter lists or mentions in verse 10. The word practice really stands out to me in this sentence because I have no idea how many hours of my life have been spent practicing. Practicing voice, developing technique, memorizing repertoire, going to rehearsals, performing in various venues at least several thousand, if not 10,000. Whether it's music or art or athletics, practice is essential. Later this year, the top athletes from all across the world will gather in Paris for the Olympics. 
undoubtedly many of those who appear at the Olympics were born with a natural talent or an aptitude for the sport or the athletic event in which they will compete. But I guarantee that there will not be one competitor in any of those contests who has not spent thousands of hours practicing what they do so that they can perform at the peak of their potential. In like manner, in verse 10, Peter says we are to practice these qualities. It takes practice. It takes practice to pursue godliness or self-control or virtue or any of the things on that list. So keep working at it. Keep chipping away at the virtues that Peter lists. And when you have a bad day of it, when you blow it, when you fall flat on your face, don't throw up your hands, don't chuck it all, don't give up, don't walk the other way, just get up and keep on going by the power of God's Holy Spirit. God has made divine provision and God makes divine resources available to you. You have personal responsibility to make the most of what the Lord puts at your disposal. Peter does such a masterful job of helping us keep a balanced perspective about the synergy that exists in the Christian life between God's provision and human responsibility. Spiritual growth, the pursuit of holiness and maturing in the Christian faith are dependent on both God's contribution and our own diligent effort. A fundamental aspect of the new covenant that God puts in place with his people is the indwelling empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. God puts his Holy Spirit into us to teach us, to guide us, to instruct us, to soften our consciences, and to make us conscious of what needs reforming, what needs transforming in our lives. As the Spirit makes us aware of these things, He also makes us aware of the power and the resources that God makes available to us so that we can accomplish God's purposes. The ability to obey God from our hearts is a gift of God. It is not something that we manufacture on our own. Paul, Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. But it is not, as we said last time, it is simply not a matter of letting go and letting God. We need to expend energy. We need to make every effort to practice, to exercise, to work out what God works in. In his first letter, Peter writes, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As was the case for those to whom Peter first wrote, we must not become lax about growing in grace and pursuing holiness. By his Holy Spirit, God makes us holy. Any effort to pursue holiness apart from what God freely gives us is doomed to failure. But at the same time, we have the responsibility of being holy. If we do not take advantage of what God gives us, if we are not diligent, if we do not make every effort 
we are nearsighted. We are blind, and we are in danger of missing the boat on the very purpose for which God has called and elected his people to salvation. If you are in Christ, you must use all of the means at your disposal to cultivate the Spirit's power in your life through worship, through prayer, through Bible study, through fellowship, through evangelism. If you are in Christ, you must take responsibility for making your life conform to the image of a godly, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting life. Even though you can't do this in your own power, you still must do it. There are many, many practical things you can do day in and day out to work at conforming your life to the image of Christ. It is God who calls and elects people to salvation, but it is our responsibility to believe. It is God who preserves his people to the end and gives them all the grace they need to cross the finish line of this life, but it is our responsibility to employ the grace in putting to death the misdeeds of our bodies and live. Our efforts to respond to God's grace in our life are essential. If we are going to confirm that God has truly chosen us, if we are going to strengthen our assurance that we are in the faith, if we are going to be as his people ready to receive God's royal welcome into heaven. I like the way one author I read expresses these non contradictory truths that are sometimes difficult for our human minds to reconcile. God chooses and ensures that we get to heaven. We need to choose God and live godly lives so that we can reach heaven. May we be those who rely but not presume upon God's grace to do these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the gift of Christ. We thank you for the gift of faith in Christ. We thank you that he is our hope in life and in death. We pray that we would continue to build on the foundation of Christ and all that he gives us, all that he has done and is doing and will ever do for us. We pray that we would not presume upon your grace, that we would not take it for granted, that we would not treat it casually, that we would not tread water in the faith but we would continue to make it our desire and our goal to be diligent, to make every effort to pursue those things that will continue to help us to be more like Jesus Christ. And as we do that, may our witness for you grow greater. May our opportunity to bring the aroma of Christ with us wherever we go become stronger. May we be more able to lift up a word of encouragement to someone who is struggling. May we be more ready to testify of, of who Jesus is and why we need a Savior to cleanse us from our sins. Lord, we need you for all these things. We pray that you will find us a faithful people who are continuing, Lord, in every way that we possibly can to pursue them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final hymn this morning, our song is... Uh,